I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Peter Moran. I'm Dustin Koski. And you're tuned in to listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast or we'll fake a snowmobile accident. Dustin. Hi. Hey guys, how you doing? Movies. <laughs> that's that's going to be the, so, the new name of our podcast is just Dustin yelling movies. Movies. Yeah. <laughs> is one movies really enough? It should be at least three. Yeah. It should be movies, movies, movies. See, Dustin gets it. Yeah. The last one should be a question mark though. Movies, movies, <laughs> movies. That encompasses our opening segments that are usually not about movies. You know how you um, are constantly criticizing the commenters for complaining about how it sometimes takes a little while to get to the movie discussion? That's directed entirely at me. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have big enough of an audience yeah. to uh, to really have we, a true... Yeah, we can say 10% of our audience does not like the opening segment. Uh, and we're just talking about Dustin. No, uh, which actually brings up a good point that uh, Dustin has been a huge... Uh, a huge supporter of our show, extremely helpful uh, from the get-go when we kind of were like, hey, we're trying to do this. We'd like some feedback. Dustin was immediately there and has stayed with us and provide a lot of helpful feedback. So even though we, we do joke about that on the show, also because, uh, Dustin, I don't think you're the only one that probably thinks they should just get to the movie. Uh, but yeah, Dustin, Dustin's been a great, uh, great supporter of the show and we're really happy to have him on um we're gonna start like we always do with guests which means three total times and let dustin introduce himself to our audience which includes dustin as we mentioned dustin what are three things about yourself that you think our listeners should know all right number three is that my brother writes for crack.com he recently had an article published about uh, the civil rights movement and misconceptions related to it so i guess that in terms of internet fame that makes me like if colin hanks had his own colin hanks that would be me just (laughs) a brother of somebody not famous well not quite famous All right. Thing number two is that I write for a porn comics site. Fetish porn. Extremely fetishistic. Like, you wouldn't believe that this is a real thing if I told you what it was. <laughs> and a sequel to my debut has just been approved. Yeah, I, I, I feel uh, a little prudish because I, ch- I checked out Chilling Tales. I checked out Forest. I checked out some other stuff, that, the, the cracked articles of your brother. And I still have not checked out uh, any of your your fetish writing. That's something I'm going to have to amend. Uh, Please don't Google my name. (laughs) (laughs) Can we change the name of the podcast? Please don't Google my name. (laughs) Uh, I I think that would even be better as a second fact without any of the other stuff. Just uh, fact number two about me. Don't Google my name. Dude, that's why the people come up with those awesome pen names. I don't. 
I yeah. can't be bothered. <laughs> can't be bothered. I'm embarrassed by this thing, and I couldn't make the effort to not put my name on it. You, you, you couldn't even do like up. you couldn't even do like a D Koski. No, <laughs> it's just me. Okay, fact number two about me is please don't Google my name. <laughs> there you go. Something for the editing. And fact number one about me. You know how you guys have this sort of runner of insulting people that have never had their own apartment or lived in an apartment? Oh my god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's me too. Oh the call is coming from inside the house. Yeah, really? You have you have brought the thing you hate most onto your podcast. <laughs> so wait, have you ever lived in a dorm? No. Okay. I've just lived here. But it was more the point of uh, rich boys who get out of college and, and then, then own their a house. parents. Yeah, <laughs> their parents just either they they got such a uh, an amazingly well paying job that they were just able to buy a house immediately. Mm. Or I'll be offended. Oh, it way. <laughs> this this is uh this is no longer three questions. This is a segment we call backpedaling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I, D- Dustin Dustin was like, I want to be on the show, but it was just to confront us on air uh, about a bunch of things that we've said that were at, either per- sort of purposely or accidentally directed at him. Well, it's it's fine. Next next time it comes up, we'll just say, you know, fuck you, except Dustin. Uh, we'll put you on our exception list in regards to people that have lived in houses their entire life. It weakens the impact, though. Yeah. But or, or we might not honest. say maybe we won't say it on air, but we'll put it in the show notes. You'll have to say it so much that should be your third new podcast title. Yeah. Third new podcast title. So thank you so much, Justin, for coming on to confront us. It's been a great episode. Uh, no. hustler, hustler, hustler cover letters. You'll never believe what happened to me. No one had sex with me. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Sorry. I had to interrupt uh, Aaron getting us back on track. He was like, tra- the train was going off the, off the rails and I was just gleefully pushing the, the, the steering wheel further off the transit steering wheels i mean i I hope not why do they have tracks you either get tracks or steering wheels didn't you see the documentary wrongfully accused how no oh well then you won't get this joke uh fact number four about dustin he knows everything about trains dustin why don't you tell us a little bit about trains Okay, um, <laughs> my dad worked as a train conductor, and he got shot he at while he really? was conducting his... Yes, it happened to... Um, it didn't happen to him multiple times, but it happened multiple times while he worked it. I think it was like a couple of times it was when he was it, when the train was in an inner city area, and a couple of times just it was like some drunk hunter was just shooting wildly and happened to hit the train. You know what this is starting to feel like? Like, so Peter just made a joke. My therapy about, session. Well, maybe, but this is starting to feel like Peter just made a joke about Dustin. You knowing stuff about trains, and then your your dad happens to be a train conductor. This is starting to feel like that episode of Mister Show where they're giving the lie detector, and every ridiculous scenario they come up with, like he has done it. Like I feel like now all of our jokes are gonna be like Dustin coming doesn't be like, hey, remember when you said that how funny it would be if. Someone got impaled by a cat. 
yeah. well, my grandparents died of being impaled by a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was the movie A Simple Plan for a while. Uh, to, to get to, we are going to start <laughs> our first segment. You know, it is funny that Dustin did mention that maybe get to the movie. Uh, <laughs> down this path of not getting to the movie um, or our segments. Well, I'm in it now, so it's different. Um, so, but actually, though, as, as, as mentioned, obviously, Dustin is very familiar with the podcast, which is perfect because the first thing we're going to do today is a game of Dustin versus Peter at Listen to Our Podcast Trivia. Oh, dear. <laughs> I should have studied. Now, once again, as all, I mean, quizzes are not fair if you give the two contestants the same type of question. So these have been specifically designed for Dustin and Peter because Peter is, you know, Dustin is a big fan. He listens. But Peter is the co-host. So in theory, Peter should be able to get much harder questions than Dustin. We have five questions each. Best out of five wins. Dustin, we'll start with you. In our Phase 4 episode, we mention a potentially destroyed ant art museum. What museum was it? Was it A, the Louvre? The Louvre. Okay. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) That's one point for Dustin. I feel like I should have made his questions harder. Peter, your first question. Uh, Aaron, before we go through, uh, how many points do you have? Yeah. Dustin has one. Aaron, the host, okay, okay. is incapable of getting points. If this was a gotcha. real game show, the part of my desk or whatever you would call it, my stand, my pedestal, that would have a scoreboard would just be blank because hosts don't get scores. So zero right now because you haven't asked any Oh, questions. my God. Okay, cool. When you come when you come to Minneapolis, we're just going to sit down and watch Game Show Network for six hours <laughs> until you understand what being a host entails. Uh, Peter, Uh-oh. your first question, which, if you get it wrong, will lead to no points for me. But if you get it right, will lead to one point to you and tie you with Dustin. Your co-host's name is Aaron Armstrong. When I was younger, I went through a secret ritual called confirmation that gave me a second name. What was my confirmation name? Oh, shit. Have you ever told me this before? Not that I'm aware of, but I am your co-host. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. Uh, um, let's say, like, Aaron Michael Armstrong. Incorrect. The correct answer was Anthony. So Dustin is up 1-0. <laughs> Dustin, your second question, fill in the blank. We mispronounce words A, never, B, sometimes, or C, always. Sometimes. Correct. (laughs) We sometimes (laughs) pronounce words. So, Peter, you're behind 2-0. Peter, your question. When recording an episode, how often do I wear pants? A, never. B, sometimes. Or C, always. B, sometimes. It is C, always. (laughs) I'm not one of those people that records podcasts without pants on. Number three, Dustin, what are the twin pillars of our podcast? Is it A, research and science, B, booze and free time, or C, Jesus and Satan? B. It's actually A, as we've said on the podcast. No, it's it's B. I mean, it is, but that is not our twin pillars that we've discussed multiple times on this show. It is research and science. I'm sorry, Dustin, I cannot give you the point. Um, Okay. (laughs) 
It's it's stringent here on game show to be named later. I think Dustin actually just threw us a minor intervention. I think so. <laughs> just like a short term, not all that good intervention. Yeah, that's that's why Adam was supposed to be on, so it was like even coverage for the intervention. <laughs> you can't have an intervention when you're outnumbered. Yeah. Uh, Peter, number three. number three. Your question, you're behind 2-0. In how many episodes have you referred to a character, quote-unquote, wielding their sexuality like a weapon? One? Two. Two. How? Possession and life Repulsion force. Repulsion and what? You Possession and life force? You did not say it in repulsion. I would hope I wouldn't say it in repulsion because yeah, he doesn't but, really do it. Yeah, but why did you? That was your one? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Your next question is, which of the following movies have we not covered on Listen to Our Podcast? Is it A, Flash Gordon, B, Dark City, or C, Death Wish 7, Charles Bronson Goes to Heaven? Aha. It, there are only five Death Wishes. <laughs> C. Correct. <laughs> so D- Dustin is a man of research. I can yes. see. And it's it, not, was called, it was called Bronson Goes to Heaven, though. <laughs> All Bronsons go to heaven. Number four, Peter. Rounding to the nearest second, how long was our high-rise episode? Uh, it was an hour, 44, 32. One hour, 20 minutes, and 23 seconds. Jesus, it was that short? That was our shortest episode. Dustin, your last question, you were ahead three to zero. Which of the following people has been a guest on our show? Is it A, Joseph Finn, co-host of the Try It You Like It podcast, B, Katrina Leskinich, lead singer of the band Katrina and the Waves, or C, Carl Winslow, the fictional character portrayed by Reginald Vell Johnson on the sitcom Family Matters? I think it's that Joseph A. Finn fellow. That is correct. Although, actually, it's not. I cannot give you that point. It's Joseph J. Finn. Give him the point. (laughs) Well, he's you. You have no chance to win, Peter. Give him the point. I'll give him the point. I'll give him the point, Peter. So you're behind. A wasn't his middle name. It's just that he is a Finn. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, he's just a, a Finn. That's fair. We found out he might be an alien on a recent podcast. I don't know what his race has as appendages. Finns could possibly be up there. The final. So you're you're behind four zero, Peter. Your final question is worth five points. You can take the lead. You can win this game, Peter. Number five, who was right about Dark City? Was it A, Aaron, or B, Peter? God damn it. I just heard him lean back in the chair. (laughs) What's what's more important, winning a game or my integrity? Uh, How dare you set myself against myself? I I should say the entire quiz was built around this question. (laughs) It's a really good question. And by that, I mean, it's evil. I was right about Dark City. Are you fucking kidding me? All right. Uh, That Dragon Ball Z third act bullshit. Are you kidding me? That is incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) Incorrect. Dustin wins the game. It's so good up to... I'll throw the game for you. It's so good up to then. And then he becomes the one and it's just blog. Once again, though, Dustin, I appreciate you and your opinions, which I vehemently disagree with. But the question wasn't to you. It was to Peter, who lost the game, Peter. You lost the game to Dustin. Is this the first in uh, the show history that I've lost a game? You lost that jumping contest. (laughs) Which, you know, must have been fair. There's no way you would have lied about jumping higher. 
I don't know if I can afford to pay taxes on the prize, though. The taxes are quite a bit on the prizes. We we, we don't tell audience members what we offer our guests, but they are pretty. Uh, they're pretty substantial. So you've ruined me. <laughs> Give it to your brother as a tax-free gift. No, no. <laughs> You'd rather I'd rather go bankrupt than he, he help him. He has to admit to some things being worthwhile and lucrative before I'm giving him a gift like that. <laughs> See, we both stand by our integrity, Dustin. Yep. Yeah, yours yours costed you a victory, though, Peter. I want to underline and that it. as many times as possible. He really um, should have cheated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure. I, I will say I wasn't sure which one you were going to do because you, as talked about on the show, you definitely have a very competitive attitude towards these fake made up games uh, and you don't like Dark City. So it's because they matter so much. So thank you so much for participating in a very long, drawn out attempt to screw Peter. I thought it worked. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it was successful. <laughs> uh, uh, Dustin, uh, Dustin has actually also brought us uh, a game to play. Uh, Dustin, why don't you take it away? Okay, it's called the Sam Raimi Orama. It's a multiple choice quiz for the two of you. Okay, oh, wow. that's never happened. First one. This is for Aaron. All questions relate to Sam Raimi things, you know, things he did in his career or his movies or, well, actually, that's it. Okay. okay. <laughs> if it was going to be like personal preferences or what fetish porn he reads, I did not do that much research. I am not at liberty to disclose my client list. Okay. <laughs> anyway, Aaron, what is a real thing? Which of the following is a real thing that Sam Raimi had done during the shoot for The Evil Dead? A. Drop a bag of manure on Bruce Campbell's head. B. Have Bruce Campbell stab him with the knife prop to prove it wasn't sharp and in the process accidentally reveal that it was. Or C. Have Bruce Campbell fire a shotgun at him repeatedly. I th you know, I read If Chins Could Kill, but it was a long time ago. I'm going to actually go A. C. He says on the commentary track that when he was operating the camera, Bruce shoots a shotgun out the window. <laughs> he said that after the first one, after the first shot, he told him, aim high. This one goes out to Peter. Score is currently zero to zero. Who did Sam Raimi have beat up Bruce Campbell during the shoot for The Quick and the Dead? A. Pat Hingle. B. Gene Hackman. C. Russell Crowe. Uh, Pat Hingle? That's correct. You are currently in the lead. Oh, awesome. <laughs> That's good to hear. After all this. <laughs> Score is zero to one. Aaron, which character did Sam Raimi say was his main motivation for taking the job of directing Oz the Great and Powerful? A. The Wizard. B. The China Doll. C. Bago Cash. This is why I can never be on a game show in real life. It's just a lot of second-guessing myself. I'm going to go B. Correct. <laughs> I don't know. I just found it kind of ridiculous, the idea that this that this tiny secondary character would be the reason that you would give for taking on this kind of movie. <laughs> yeah, and I actually like Oz, the great and powerful, too. Well, someone you has are. to. Did I, just, yes. did I just lose my point? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody saw that movie. Okay, score is now one to one. one, to one. Peter, which <laughs> Coen Brothers movie has Sam Raimi in it? A. 
Miller's Crossing. B. Kriller's Mossing. C. Kissing Baller. I hate you. A. Miller's Crossing. Score is now one to two in Peter's favor. <laughs> Sorry. Now it's time for the tie-breaking question. This Peter's one goes winning. up to... <laughs> I wonder how that happened. Maybe give me give me one whether Sam Raimi did the Schmevil Dead, the Fleevil Dead, or the Evil Dead, and then we can have a real tiebreaker. An American the Tale, Evil Dead evil goes dead. west. <laughs> oh, don't die on us, Dustin. <laughs> okay. This last one is for Aaron. <laughs> what would Sam Raimi say if asked his opinion of Dark City? I feel like this has been made up on the fly, but continue. <laughs> no, I had this typed out in advance, I swear to God. A. Best movie ever. B. Perfect movie. Five out of seven. C. Hi, I'm Sam Raimi. You may remember me from such movies as, Krill as Kriller's Mossing. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's A. <laughs> That's correct. So we have to. So as expected, we ended a tie. <laughs> There's no more tiebreaker. It just ends in a tie. I'm, I literally have a tear coming out of my eye right now. That is it was the per it was the perfect game. Thank you so much, Dustin, for bringing this to our attention. You're welcome. So yeah, after all that ridiculousness, let's. Let's get started talking about the movie. Okay. Group of friends find money, can't spend it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I yield my extra time. <laughs> Peter, do you want to do the 90 second? Uh, sure. Um, all right. So a, a bunch of two uh, Midwestern good boys are going to see uh, two of their mother's grave. And they uh, stumble upon a uh, crash site with a, uh, a plane of a plane and inside is uh, a corpse and a bag of money. They all uh, argue a little bit and try and figure out what to do with the money. And they decide that one of them, Hank, uh, played by Bill Paxton, should keep the money 
and that uh, Billy Bob Thornton, his brother, who's a little um, mentally off, I don't really know what, we'll get into that later, uh, and his uh, drunk friend Lou do not get to have the money for now, and they decide that they're going to hold on to it to see if anybody comes looking for it. Um, they all make big plans for the money, and then pretty soon they get embroiled in a murder um, thanks to Billy Bob Thornton's character. And that escalates things uh, in the movie where they have to stack lie upon lie to protect themselves and see if they can get away with the money at the end of the day. Then uh, a criminal comes calling for the $4 million in cash at the end of the movie, played by Gary Cole. And uh, in a turn of events... Billy Bob Thornton, who's feeling great regret for the the, uh, the deaths that have un, un, occurred uh, under his watch to try and get this money, uh, begs Bill Paxton to end his life after Bill Paxton uh, kills Gary Cole and basically says, we're going to have to do one more big lie to get out of this safe. And Billy Bob Thornton's character can't abide that. At the end of the day, uh, Hank gets away scot-free from the crime, but... He can't spend any of the money because the FBI the FBI tells him that the bills have been marked. So he goes back to his normal existence, minus a brother and uh, minus his uh, integrity and minus his happy marriage. Yeah, and he lets you know very clearly what he's thinking about what happened at the end. Yeah, because there's, there's a voiceover to, to sort of like Gone Girl. There's voiceover to open and close the movie, sort of show you how much has changed even though the imagery is very similar at the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie uh, a lot has changed to the character yeah thank you so much peter i think i think that was a pretty good recap let's <laughs> that sounded really sarcastic i heard sincerity <laughs> yeah good that's good yeah i meant it sincerely so let's let's start talking about what our experience with this movie is if we've seen it before or just our general general thoughts about the movie i can start um i i haven't seen this since it first uh, came out, which would have been 1998. Um, it was definitely close to, besides the Evil Dead movies and Army of Darkness, probably my first uh, non-Evil Dead-related Sam Raimi movie. I loved it. It's kind of been one of those movies that I constantly think and have been thinking for the last few years that at some point I need to get back and watch it again. Um, it's, it's, it's stayed with me in that, oh yeah, that movie, I need to see it again. Um, I watched it again. And I really, I really liked it again. I think there were some elements that I probably didn't notice the first time that really, I think, don't work in this movie that at, at the very least were not present on my mind when I saw it 16, 17 years ago. But I think this is a, a nice, solid thriller and kind of a throwback, I think, to uh, a morality tale type movie. Like, I could easily see this being a Humphrey Bogart movie in the 50s um, of just a, just kind of a straight ahead, really well done thriller about people uh, having a chance at a better life through some nefarious or illegal means and uh, handling that very poorly. I saw the movie a bunch of years ago. This is one of those movies that was, I think, on one of the movie channels that my parents had. Uh, so it was just kind of on and I caught in bits and pieces when I was very young. And at the time, I mostly just liked when uh, people were murdering each other because <laughs> uh, I was very young. And uh, I didn't remember very much of it at all uh, between now and then, which was uh, kind of lovely. And I didn't even remember that Lou was a character. I don't think I even really mentioned Lou in my 90-second recap that much. The movie had uh, sort of over the years, it sort of had 
I'd only remembered it as one of the rural thrillers that came out of uh, the same era as the Coens when, you know, Fargo and Witness and those sort of movies that like taking uh, these thrillers out of metropolises and out into the countryside. Uh, Doris Claiborne is also one of them. Um, Misery. And sort of trying to capture uh, Hollywood, trying to capture everyday folks of the, mostly the Midwest, but sometimes, you know, rural areas of the East Coast as well. And I, watching it again, it was kind of refreshing because they don't really make thrillers like this very much anymore. And if they are, they're indie, so they have a very different feel to them. This feels like a big Hollywood movie. Uh, Sam Raimi has a very deft directorial hand. And uh, it has a big budget and a big cast, and, or it feels like it has a big budget at least. I, I enjoyed it. Had a budget of seventeen million dollars. Yeah, it from feels research. <laughs> I did know that it didn't quite make back its budget. Sixteen point uh, eight million. <laughs> yeah, which is which is a little sad for such a, a modest, a modestly budgeted movie. It's not. It's not offensive or anything. Like it's not. There's no reason for this to have been ignored to that capacity. Well, you have to remember, 1998, $16 million was like $300 million in today's dollars. That's, <laughs> speci- that's Well, that's specifically for people listening 2,000 years in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but where, where the- it will be worth less than $16 million is... In 1998. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I wanted to make sure, like, we're doing this podcast forever, Peter. Like, we we, we have to keep that in mind or else people are going to be really confused later on. Like, this isn't for you listening now. This is for your children's 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 uh, space alien uh, hybrids. <laughs> and if you could archive binge that much you deserve to be you deserve special attention yeah i agree good <laughs> yeah, point, exactly dustin. yeah dustin what's your sort of experience with the movie dustin uh this is i think the first time that a viewer has submitted a movie which we'll get into at the end of the show but that might become part of uh our new format yeah uh, we're a, a viewer of the podcast Submits a movie. Oh, actually, we had this be voted on in the Dissolve Facebook group, and I was sure it would be Winter's Vote, but no, we went with this one instead. I should say that, like, I think Peter and I both voted for A Simple Plan. <laughs> we put our thumbs on the scale. Would you, at the, sec- at the, second, the second that I saw it and I voted for it because I was like, oh, this has kind of been the excuse I've been looking for to talk about this movie again. And then I immediately was like, should I have voted like I get to choose all all the movies. Like Peter and I get to choose all the movies we talk about on this podcast. Should we really be voting in these polls? We should have kept that voting decision secret, yeah, so that it eventually <laughs> tore us apart. Yeah, <laughs> and, and one of us had to die for it. <laughs> Keep their mouth shut. <laughs> because if uh, Simple Plan taught me anything, it's that any lie can escalate to deadly proportions. Um, yeah, so Dustin, what did you think about this movie? Or what what have you thought about it? I mean, it was, even though it was voted on in the Dissolve group, you were definitely, it was on your short list of, of stuff you thought would be interesting to talk about. Yeah, I think it's um, by far Sam Raimi's best movie. I personally love it. I've rewatched it twice since <laughs> since I first saw it. And I said something on Facebook about, so this whole time, Sam Raimi's best movie was a simple plan. And you didn't even tell me. For shame. <laughs> it, it is kind of fun because I, I disagree that it's his best movie, but it is kind of fun when uh, the one that you ignore most pleases you the most. I think it's that 
um, a simple plan doesn't really have gimmicks. Because Sam Raimi said that he designed this movie to be Sam Raimi directorial gimmick shot proof. Uh, or free, rather. Because, like, with The Evil Dead, you have all those roaming POV shots that he's famous for, or you have those variable frame rates for the filming. There's a lot of very distinctive directing and camera work being put into the forefront shots in other Sam Raimi movies. And this one, he said, is all about character, all about stories and relationships and interactions. And while that makes a good movie, it also makes a movie that's harder to talk about. You, you can't really talk about the wood chipper scene equivalent that you have in Fargo for a simple plan because there isn't because there really isn't one. Yeah, you're right. There's, and, there's... and you can't really and there's nothing really to parody because it because uh, it's like so it's like a low key symphony all the way through that works perfectly and is completely self-contained and has and you can't really chip um clip parts of it out and let them drift into the larger pop culture landscape. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because there isn't a defining moment in the sense you, you mentioned the woodchapper scene, but it, it, it is just a solidly crafted thriller and it doesn't have, you know, the, the little moments of uh, Sam Raimi directorial flourishes, I think do exist in the movie. Um, the, there's the there's the crow scene. There's the the there's a standoff scene where um, there's a standoff scene where Hank's wife ends up getting shot, and she kind of flies Ugh. up very cartoonishly. Um, and and there's a few, there's a few there's a few moments like that that feel kind of like Raimi in full on Evil Dead mode. But they are but they're they're few and far between. And like you mentioned, they're not enough to hang a hey this this is the movie that has this in it. Um, so I think that's really on point. And it's interesting to me. I actually didn't know that Raimi said that he was trying to do that because there is a part of me that whenever I see a Raimi movie that's not uh, Evil Dead, it, you know, or Dark Man or something like that, it feels like he sneaks in these little um, crazy eccentric camera movements. And I always wonder that or that's not Evil Dead or Drag Me to Hell. I should also add in there as well. It sometimes feels in these movies like I don't know if he's holding himself back or he feels like he needs to hold back. And like these little Raimi flourishes break out of his uh, non crazy movies, so to speak. And so it's actually interesting to hear that he had had planned to do that because obviously I shouldn't be a betting man. But if I was a betting man, I would say that. Like, those are his favorite parts is when he gets to insert that into his uh, studio movies or his non-crazy movies. Yeah, and I think that the... I think that Dustin and Aaron are both right in the sense that one of the bigger strengths of this movie is its sort of classicism. It's got this core competency. Because Raimi is... If you watch Evil Dead through any sort of... Uh, more Evil Dead 2, I should say, than 1. But if you watch Evil Dead 2 through the scope of film technique, uh, you see that he's a really wonderful film experimenter that knows why techniques are deployed. And, like, Evil Dead 2 could function as just a, like, proof of concept. Like, I... Or not even proof of concept. It could, it could function as a, uh, a test for him. Like, I understand why all these techniques are deployed. I understand why they're here. So this movie doesn't have those big flourishes, but it does have 
um, Raimi's core competency, which uh, I disagree slightly in, I disagree somewhat actually in um, the perfectly choreographed sort of symphony uh, metaphor that you're using in the sense that I think the movie has plot problems, but I think that Raimi is such a, a wonderfully yeah, competent, thoughtful director that the force and energy of his direction just pushes through a lot of moments that uh, on paper, uh, you know, if, maybe if I read the book, I would be like, I don't know. You See, that's really check out. That's so funny, only- though, that you think that it has plot problems because I think the plot is like a perfectly made clock. My issues with the movie are all characterization problems. And it's funny because like, when you watch a movie like this, like uh, this isn't a perfect example, but uh, you watch movies like this and it is interesting when you get attached to something that's core, it's core uh, identity is just like competent thriller. And it's, it's funny trying to figure out like why you're attached to one and not another. Yeah, this movie's not trying to be funny like Fargo. It doesn't have flashy camera work, but like, say, a girl with a dragon tattoo type movie. But I'm more attached to those two movies. And it's kind of interesting. Like, I really admired a lot of the direction of this movie. Um, but I'm trying to figure out why I didn't feel the, like, thrumming love that Dustin, Dustin did. And to some extent, it sounds like Aaron did. Have you ever been in or visit, uh, lived in the Midwest? Oh, yeah. I'm actually... Uh, I'm, I oh, live yeah, in Chicago you're... now, but I grew up in the suburbs, so I've seen a lot of Illinois, uh, northern Missouri, Iowa. So, yeah, I've seen a, a lot of Indiana. I've seen a lot of uh, – I reckon a lot of that camera uh, – the camera photography of the Midwest really resonated with me on that, that level. Well, that ruins my theory. Oh, no, no, no. I'd love to hear your theory. No, no, because that might be – I think a big problem with this, another big problem with this movie on a commercial level is everybody talks in a real way and they're pretty grounded. And even if there are characterization problems, the people feel real and whatnot. And they don't feel fun like cartoon characters like you. The reason I brought up Fargo in the woodchipper scene is because this seems like it was inspired to a large extent by uh, Sam Raimi the Coen brothers and being maybe envious of their success with Fargo and wanting to replicate that on some level. But his characters are just people. They're just the sort of people I might meet if I go out to um, fish or something like that. They, they're they human, but, but the problem is that doesn't let them be clever or quotable or that sort of thing. So I thought I that might be why we why we like them and you don't so much. <laughs> well, I, I also think I also think that one thing that this does, and this is going to sound like a joke, but I actually don't mean it this way, is I I grew up or spent most of my uh, you know elementary school to high school years in like the middle of North Dakota, and it, while it was the second biggest city in North Dakota, that's still a pretty small city compared to like actual cities. So I think one thing that this does have in common. With the movie Fargo, and I think why why shooting in the completely covered snow and, you know, you never even see the pavement when you're driving is it does lend an element of realism to, yeah, I would kill people if I had a chance to get out of this fucking icy hellscape um, <laughs> because – 
if you live in kind of like this this type of story i think works well and i don't think there's actually that many similarities between uh fargo and a simple plan even if there was uh some crossover marketing or reason for it existing i think that basically the two things that cross over are the fact that it's cold and money is involved by people that are not normally criminals or illegal illegally gained money is involved i, I think if you made this type of movie in a big metropolis that's florida and sunny and there's beaches or just anything like that i think it doesn't give that isolating like i will do anything to get out of this vacuous nothing that i am existing in and maybe that's just because like i obviously i've never felt that but i do know that feeling of holy shit it snowed two feet and I have to somehow get to work in my shitty car that won't start and I the the you know the windshield is frozen and I'm just going to nothing. Like that's a really palpable feeling that I think this movie makes you feel. Is is that sort of and and that is a theme among movies that take place in rural environments, is that a lot of people the characters that we're supposed to identify with, notably the Hank in this and then eventually Jacob, I think they play Jacob off as sort of a joke. And then they eventually come back around and let Jacob uh, expose his core competencies and his, his core intelligence and his sweetness later on in the movie, which is kind of interesting in terms of characterization. Because at first, he's just kind of a bumpkin. Like, he's just like, I'm going to piss in the snow, too. But I think in these movies, they sort of uh, always have the character that you identify with be the one that wants to get the fuck out of the Midwest. I do I, I kind of feel like there's something elitist about that. I'm not calling the movie elitist because obviously oh, here we Sam Raimi is the sort of person that like wanted to get out of <laughs> wherever he grew up and, and go. Rural, rural uh, Michigan. Dear boy. Yeah, he, he wanted yeah. to get out of rural Michigan and, and get uh, to a big city and make movies that, you know, people I, I should I should say Dearborn's America. a suburb of D- Detroit. The, uh, I think that there's there's sort of an elitism of it that comes from these movies sometimes where they're like they shit on the Midwest so much because they were made by people that probably escaped the Midwest. Um, yeah, that's like part the- of the reason that I think people like the Coen Brothers is because like Coen Brothers make movies that are sort of like lovingly mocking the Midwest from an insider's perspective. The Coens once described the Midwest as being um, Siberian Russia, but with family restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, yeah they, it, do you guys know what I'm kind of saying? Do you feel like a sense of these characters always need to see and to get, want to get the fuck out? I disagree with you, yeah, though, that Bill Paxton's... I disagree with you, though, that Hank wants to get out. Um, he, does, he definitely wants to get out as soon as the money becomes an issue. He's like, no, he wants to leave no, the farm. We have to move, he has no interest Yeah, in we have farm. to move away. He keeps saying that. Yeah, he's like, he has no interest in the farm. And he's like, is this all you... And he he's basically wants to leave Jacob behind. But he wants Jacob to get out of there, too. And then eventually he's like, what else does Jacob have but this little town? Like, he thinks that the town will protect protect people like jacob but like the outside world is scary and only people like hank and his wife can handle it do you think the few billion he has would help <laughs> although that would be pretty suspicious <laughs> that mr bumpkin shows up and he's one billions of dollars somehow um like i i think hank eventually gets excited about the prospect but i do but, feel like he has settled into a and, I, and this this feels more judgy than I mean it, but I feel like he settled into a comfortable rut. 
it feels like it's uh, Bridget Fonda, his wife. I should say his wife is actually Bridget Fonda in this movie. She plays herself. Um, no, but his his wife is the one who immediately feels like she whatever we never saw what the other side of the dime was like because we meet her right basically as she finds out about the money for any length of time but she's the one that feels like she turns on a dime at seeing an escape where Hank is much slower to uh, come to the idea that he needs to escape and he even though there is some bluffing involved in um, ending it he feels way more likely or he feels closer to to stopping it and just going back to his life more than the rest of the characters isn't it enlightened at all that Sarah or Bridget Fonda isn't really a femme fatale at all. She seems to try to like seduce Hank to her way of thinking less by um, offering him any pleasure than just by like trying to appeal to some sort of family instinct because she's pregnant. That's extra pressure to get out of there and that sort of thing. And she's always kind of sweet. It seems. Yeah. She's a less problematic. She's a less problematic lady Macbeth. <laughs> like she, she's like a, and obviously, I'm not calling Lady Macbeth in the core language problematic. I'm just saying our standards have changed to the point where that sort of uh, evil conniving woman um, character uh, now isn't seen as friendly by modern audiences. I feel like she's got I think she's drawn pretty fairly. This is going to sound really sexist, but like the, Bridget Fonda is the only woman in the movie and I really don't care for her at all. There's something uh, about her no, performance that really makes me uncomfortable. There's Hank's wife, oh, I like the one who gets shot and flies through the air. <laughs> yeah, she's great. She's she's. I love her because she's just giving Lou shit for being Lou. <laughs> Such well-deserved shit, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, she's the one who's working, and he's the town drunk. If you're proud of being the town drunk, that's no fault. That's divorce yeah <laughs> and he, yeah she's he, she's the smartest character in the movie yeah i like i liked her because especially like we get why she goes to the kitchen for the gun that's the one sequence in the movie where i felt like the movie really really the sort of in the moment chaotic energy the movie wanted me to feel where it's like well yeah of course you have to shoot her because she's shooting at you and like why she's shooting at you the movie lays out the tiny steps that it takes for this scene to escalate from just three dudes arguing to a witness getting involved to her husband's murder to her getting murdered and then they have to turn it into another lie like that scene is just so wonderfully done and a lot of it is because i identified with uh lou's Lou's wife where i was just like we get three seconds for just being like i work all goddamn day and now you assholes (laughs) are getting drunk in my living room like Get out of my house. <laughs> yeah, I think I think part of the reason that scene works so well, besides I agree the performances and the, the writing, is that as I mentioned earlier, that's really where Raimi goes goes full Raimi for a couple minutes, it feels like. And I, I think that adds to kind of the kinetic energy of the scene. I bet you this movie would have been mediocre, but it would have been a hit if he went full Raimi for the whole thing. I don't know yeah. if it would have been mediocre. <laughs> See, I, <laughs> I I really like it. As oh yeah, you're it the one who likes Oz the Great and Powerful. <laughs> I do, I do like it. I don't think it's great, but I enjoyed it. I feel like Raimi was kind of a mini directorial revolution at the time. Of I'm going to throw every 
trick on screen that I possibly can think of. And in the same way that we kind of refer to for most, I guess, uh, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, they feel like the one time Joe Dante got to make a real Joe Dante movie was Gremlins 2. And the rest of it, he kind of held back. I sometimes feel that way about Raimi. I think this movie is great. I really do love this movie, but I feel like the studio system and him trying to work in it affected him more than he affected it. Well, when he gets to do what he wants, it feels like more uh, just whatever he wants. It feels like too often that becomes another Three Stooges pastiche. Like that's all over the place in Army of Darkness, all over the place in Evil Dead 2, and it it's here and there in drag me to hell so i don't know it, it just feels like he would have turned hank into ash um maybe she would have been shot so maybe lou's wife would have needed to be shot several times and so you would have had a memorable scene but <laughs> it would be kind of ridiculous and the characterization would sort of be buried under that i really love this movie so i don't know if uh, of a quote-unquote full Raimi would improve it or make it worse I'm just saying I wouldn't necessarily, I guess from Hello? my perspective and the way that I view Raimi, oh. I wouldn't immediately assume that it would be worse. Because I think he does have so many movies like The Quick and the Dead or The Gift uh, or even For Love of the Game that like he kind of straddled that line of what he wanted to do. And I think those movies are all okay, but worse off for him not making a decision about what he wanted to do with those movies. At least, again, I could be... I have no idea what he wanted to do with those movies. That's my sense from seeing the films. And it's funny because you, when someone comes out of the gate with such a strong style as he did, uh, when you see his later movies, sometimes if they don't have that strong style, sometimes you feel like that's the director becoming more mercenary or more for hire. That's maybe if you're uh, of this sort of uh, of your the sort of idea that people can sell out by just trying to get work that maybe he sold out. You, I could see that sort of as it goes, but I really he's a really hard to pin down director. I think like he tried to adapt the the Evil Dead to Army of Darkness style comic, throwing a hundred angles at you and a ton of techniques and a lot of fast cuts with Darkman, and then I think that he got so savaged for Darkman by a lot of critics that he uh, pulled back and he said, Let, let's see um, what other kinds of movies I can make. And I would never begrudge a director for wanting to make a movie just to uh, break him out of a, a, a personal rut or um, break uh, people out of what concepts that they they see him as uh, upholding. Like, And I want to be clear, like, I'm not trying to say that he sold out. It just feels like he feels like he didn't know what kind of movies he wanted to make sometimes. So it ends up with all of these. Yeah, like the gift is OK for love of the games. OK. A lot of these movies feel like they're just, you know, really middle of the road, okay stuff. A Simple Plan does work fantastically because he goes in the opposite direction that he's most known for. And I think that works really well. All I was trying to say earlier is that I don't know what that other version looked like. Could be great. Could be terrible. But I think that even, you know, if he goes in the other direction on those, maybe they're also terrible. Maybe The Gift or a baseball movie with Kevin Costner is terrible or by going a full Raimi, but I think at least it would be interesting and it, it would feel like he was trying to do something. It feels like for a lot of his career, a director I love, I'm not sure what he's trying to do. Um, 
So the other thing I want to talk about, and I'm sorry, Peter, if I'm kind of putting you on the spot here because I'm going to refer to something that you have not yet really said on this podcast. But if you want, I can let you bring it up because I kind of want to talk about it before we get into more spe- uh, scenes and characterization stuff. You can put me on the spot. I don't give a shit. Okay. You guys are friends. You got it. Okay. Yeah, so not to put you on the spot, Peter, but there was one last big thing I want to talk about, which is that, and it's kind of been brought up a couple times in referring to this as Fargo, or, or Fargo, or similar to Fargo. Pastiche. A pastiche. I don't feel like it is similar to, you called it Coen Brothers Light to me, and I don't feel like it's that at all, besides the fact that it's, again, people who are non-criminals trying to do criminal activities well. If anything, this feels like an old morality tale from the 40s and 50s, and I think that's because, like, I don't see, Coen Brothers movies are not necessarily to me defined by uh, non-criminals trying to do crime in a in this case winter environment or or anything like that they're more eccentric they have more stylized areas like this this seems to me like a straight ahead thriller that borrows or references a couple Coeny brothers things but in no way is like some sort of rip off on what the Coen brothers are trying to do Whoa. So what I'm and trying you, to you say, didn't, I you, and I should I should clarify, you didn't say rip off, but I feel like when you say no, Cohen Brothers, yeah. right, light. So, so that's so what here I'll, I'll kind of explain. I'll kind of explain. Well, my, another my, part of the reason I feel that way is because the the he had worked with them, like Joel Cohen edited The Evil Dead, so that was so that make, and their buddies were together on Crime Wave, and yeah, they're, they're a Proxy, Sam Raimi directed um, a scene or two in that. So, and Billy Bob Thornton is in a couple of, well, Fargo. And the Fargo so TV fa- show. Yeah. 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 So the, well, I guess, yeah, the, not just the Fargo TV show. But anyways. Um, so he finally, so he got to do the ripoff. Yeah. <laughs> so my point was more that the, this movie, and this is something that I've actually softened on. My immediate reaction to this movie was uh, Colin Brothers White, but. My one of the things I do ultimately like about this movie, and I kind of kind of resonates with me, is that this is um, this is one of those movies where they they are blessed by one moment in fate, and that blessing turns out to be a curse, and every bad thing that could happen to Hank just keeps happening to a level that easily could go into parody, easily go into comedy. And I don't think it ever does in this movie. I'd love to see the evil dead version of this where it's just like, no matter what, everything goes wrong. But, yeah. but that's, but yeah, the fart, but yeah, the Collins are, aren't, I, don't, I, I didn't say the Collins were identified by, or Collins are uh, identified by snow. I think Collins are identified by rural settings and everyday people getting in things that are bigger than their head, either because of their own mistakes or some sort of Job-esque thing that's completely out of their hands. That's what a serious man is about, is this, this is terrible Job that, you know, no matter what happens, this guy just can't fix things. And it's almost and it almost becomes like a black, black comedy that he can't get his life back on track. Raising Arizona and uh, Fargo are both about, you know, People deciding to commit one simple crime and everything goes wrong over and over and over again for them because of that. And, and, and uh, that's why it felt like that. But it didn't seem to have. And at the time, it was I was more just kind of um, it was rubbed, it rubbed me the wrong way because it, this movie isn't really funny. 
Um, and the Coen brothers always sort of give you the, the medicine with a spoonful of sugar. This movie has this very similar tone in that sense where it's just shit just keeps going wrong for these guys. And it's almost funny, but not quite. And the Coen brothers would have made it funny. Uh, I've sort of softened on that because I like the movie more as, yeah, like a classic throwback, double indemnity style, people get into mischief movie. But uh, yeah, that's why I said it. It, they do do a surprisingly good job of keeping it under wraps. Like you would think they seem to be unusually successful every time the word almost gets out that they found money or something. They deal with the leak pretty quickly. When that fellow that they fake the snowmobile accident for, they get him right away pretty much. Although they both they both clearly feel awful that their hands are dirty, but... The word doesn't quite get out, so it's there's not as much tension. So people don't know. It just doesn't seem as much the whole way through like they'll be caught. And they're really not caught. Yeah. Like, that's what's interesting it, is that they don't get caught. <laughs> yeah. They, they, um, could, they could have gotten away with the end, but the, the their, their domestic life at, at the beginning, at the end, at first it's sort of like a perfect little pastoral scene. And at the end, it's a prison. That, that's a really good um, that's a really good way to describe it. Um, I will say, though, that it does feel a little bit like, you know, you're saying, well, the Coen brothers would have made this funny. Well, but I, I again, that's why I don't think that this is in any way really I, I don't feel like it's him trying to ape the Coen brothers success with Fargo. They're just the Coen brothers style in this movie are so different. I feel like this is just the basic morality play. And it's not supposed to be funny. It's not supposed to be ironic. It's not to have these um, extended tendencies that the Coen Brothers movies are so good at doing. You know, this this just feels like a throwback to old film noir from the 40s and 50s, just done in a Midwestern setting. Yeah, and, it, and it's and it's. Uh, I, I don't think he consciously necessarily did that. I just think that at the time they were making a lot of <laughs> rural thrillers about people getting into into mischief and maybe some of it was subconsciously aping you know fargo and maybe some of it was was intentional i don't know i'm not i'm not accusing him of some sort of theft and ultimately i think the movie works uh, on its own terms uh but that was my immediate reaction was colin white sorry dustin what were you gonna say i forgot <laughs> Sorry, well, kind of, well, kind of well, Dustin, you know, Dustin what do you, before, before we move on from this, what you, uh, I'm not trying to. This this almost started as like a parents getting a divorce. Like, well, who do you want to talk to? Who do you want to go with? But um, but what 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 do you think? Do you you mentioned that you you felt early on that this did have some similarities to Fargo? Do you think that it is taking that style or that? My buddy's got a lot of fanfare and appreciation for doing this type of movie. I should do something like this. Or do you feel like it's just, hey, this is an interesting movie and an interesting story. And he was trying to, you know, throw back to the early days of Hollywood, which he did quite a bit, mainly in comedy. B. But so you, B. Uh, uh, I think, it, yeah, I think it's the second one. Although I think it isn't so much he thought, hey, my buddy's got rich doing this as just it's so hard to sell a movie, especially one at a $15 million level back in the 90s without being able to say, hey, look, Fargo was a hit. So even if he wanted to, if Fargo was big in his mind, it had conscious influence for throwing away all of the Raimi gimmicks and things like that. It wasn't necessarily cynical or mercenary in any way. It just, well, no, it was necessary to get funding 
Yeah, that part I understand. I think we talked about that a little bit on the Candyman episode where uh, I read something about them, you know, kind of using Science of the Lambs as, look, here's a serial killer. And I get that, but I think that, that the similarities at the end of the day are pretty superficial. Not if you're a studio executive. <laughs> That's a good point. That this movie was probably definitely sold as like Fargo made money. Fargo got Oscars. I think we sort of addressed. I think the, the I think Cullen. we've exhausted. I think we've exhausted it. Yeah, I think that we sort of addressed the Colin thing. I, I just wanted to I wanted to get in there because obviously uh, it is something that I said and then I've kind of I've softened on, but I did think it was interesting. So the other I do want to talk about before we get into scenes, I kind of want to talk about some characterization stuff because I feel like there's two characters in this movie that are very well portrayed, but I have some problems with, and that's Billy Bob Thornton's character and Bridget Fonda's character. I agree. Yeah. If we don't know what Lou's deal, if we don't know what Jacob's deal is, that could be a problem. It's just... Well, you can't say we didn't do autism very well because we never said he's very aut- he's autistic or whatever. Or is it just that small town people are like this if they accept the small town lifestyle? Yeah, exactly. So, and so he's kind of this is Lenny. Uh, just figure this is kind of safer Lenny from Of Mice and Men, and that's it. Well, but but Lenny never all of a sudden gets like super diabolical suddenly at a few points in the movie or insightful, not like on accident. And and I think that was my problem. It, it it's he does I mean, Peter Peter Peter. You mentioned earlier he kind of starts off as a big goof who's like, yeah, great, we have money, and then later on kind of plays these weird like when that scene before the big standoff with Lou and Hank to do it, he almost becomes like a like a Bond villain for like 60 seconds and how good he is at piecing together. And then the second he's called on it, like that melts away and he's all of a sudden like, yeah, I don't know. I was just trying to do this. And I feel like uh, he falls into the that trap of being whatever the movie wants him to be in that moment. And I think that takes away from some of the empathy they're trying to instill in his plight and his character near the end. Like, it's kind of hard to take the whole, I've never even kissed a girl thing seriously and and they they lay that on thick. I mean, to to even say I've never even kissed a girl, it's almost like they're they're saying it's like old yeller, like he's gonna get put down. Like, well, every time I pet a puppy, they die. Like, it's it's it's, it's, it's weight. It's they're laying it on way too thick. It's right after a few moments where we've seen him be the smartest guy in the room all of a sudden, and that's Billy Bob Thornton does a great performance, I think, and he got a lot of accolades for this performance. But that inconsistency really, really hurts the movie. I think overall. I bet you if you asked Billy Bob Thornton, if you confronted him on it, he'd say something like, oh, Lou's problem was just that he was like coasting mentally. And before he did this, he never was like challenged or anything. So he just became a bumpkin. Like it's some sort of mental atrophy that happens. Yeah. And once there, now that we're in the crime situation, he's focused and he's actually thinking. So he raises up to Hank level intelligence or he was always that smart or something, but he just never uh, was challenged or nobody ever had faith in it. But that would make sense if he stayed there. He doesn't. 
he, he no he does not he flip flops within <laughs> the same scene like he that that scene I mentioned where he becomes extremely diabolical the second that Lou realizes they're tape recording which by the way I kind of want to talk about the fact that fuck fuck you Bill Paxton like why would you play that tape hey I know you're drunk and crazy call him tomorrow and, have, and tell him and we're in the Midwest so you've got a gun yeah <laughs> um, but so my point about my point about the Billy Bob Thornton character Jacob is that the one I, I think that I agree there on they laid it on too thick in certain scenes and I think early on they played them as too straight dumb um, but I think the thing that they they're trying to do is that he's emotionally very stupid. He's emotionally very, he doesn't have high intelligence. He doesn't really know how to read people. And then he doesn't really know how to read himself. And then he has moments of sort of revelation, right? Where he's like the moment in the car where he's like, you know, I never really, you know, I think she liked me still, but I know it was a game, like that sort of thing. And then he has these flashes of regular intelligence. And I think the movie is trying to build a more complicated and layer character but it's putting too many details in. It's trying to build this character that I, I've met people from who weren't as fortunate to have uh, as much uh, education as I've had in my life. Uh, I'm trying to say it as <laughs> diplomatically as I can. Uh, people that just, frankly, maybe didn't finish high school or never got any sort of uh, schooling after grade school, they sometimes have different levels of intelligence and different things. And if you get them started on something that they're super passionate about, they can just rattle off all day. And they, they know, like, they just know their, their shit at this, like, these couple of things. People aren't all Ivy League type smart or bumpkin stupid. There's many, many layers to the onion. Um, yeah, and I and think I, they were I, trying to do something like that, where there's, like, he's, like, smart in certain ways and stupid in certain in, in, in other ways. But uh, I, I don't think it's ultimately successful. It would have been great if he'd stayed. This was the evolution of him into Lorne Malvo, <laughs> which is a character he plays on Fargo. That suddenly by the end, he just cuts his hair, takes off his glasses, gets that weird bowl cut. And all of a sudden, I'm smart now. Oh, my God. If it was a, a Kaiser Soze ending. <laughs> I, I was just about to say that, like, the, the way that he shows those, not flashes of now I'm engaged in participating, but flashes of I'm a super genius. Um, I'm cunning. Yeah. That uh, that feels like it's not too far from the from the truth. And, you know, it, it's it's a testament to how good Billy Bob Thornton is, is that he almost gets away with it you know like he's because you're right those scenes of like him talking about that one month relationship where the girl just dated him as a lark for a bet you know they're very moving and he does a great job of selling his character's pain and his level it's the problem is all in the scripting of wanting him to be dumb when the script needs him to for to present challenges for Hank extremely smart when the script needs him to be smart in order to provide a twist the audience wasn't expecting it's definitely and it's interesting I just think it's I think that is a another example of uh, I was saying earlier that I think the movie is wonderfully directed but has plotting issues I, uh, I guess this is an extension of that that I think it has some script issues with how they characterize Billy Bob Thornton and the wife, I can't even remember what Bridget Fonda's name is in the movie. What's her name? Sarah, isn't it? Yeah. So I think there's some scripting issues with Billy Bob Thornton and Sarah, Hank's wife. But I think that Billy Bob Thornton is such a great actor that he can sell a humanity past 
a character that's uh, sort of unformed. Because he, he lends, I think that's one thing that Billy Bob Thornton used to do is play these sort of like bumpkin-y, simple characters and just and just nail that 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 sort of sweetness. Sling Blade is no is a character that people remember because Sling Blade is is sweet as well as scary. So let's talk about Sarah a little bit because this is an extremely frustrating character for me because I really like Bridget Fonda. Uh, if she's listening, if she's ten, if she's the uh, one of the other ten percent of our listeners, um, please <laughs> please go back to acting. <laughs> I remember her from Jackie Brown too, and that's it. I found her irritating for almost all of her career. <laughs> um, oh, she has certain just ticks, and yeah, I, it's it's hard to really dive into it without being petty. But like, she just has ticks that annoy me. The way that well, she, we're not going to get her back to acting now, Peter. Thank you so much. <laughs> she has she, like there's there's uh, different ticks that she has. I remember, I guess I liked her fine in Jackie Brown, um, but she didn't blow me away. I've just never been much of a fan of her. So she was off to shaky ground here. There are a few sequences in this where I liked her, but... Wasn't there some woman in The Mask that you said you hated, too? <laughs> I actually... I've, I'm softer on Cameron Diaz than I am... Than I Cameron am. Diaz. I'm sucks. softer on Cameron Diaz than I am on Bridget Fonda, I think, because Cameron Diaz, I think, has had three good performances in her career. But yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want to start this. What women I hate podcast, but, uh, <laughs> but, Brid- but Bridget, we can cut all it this out. It would be so popular <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> among people that I hate. Yeah. Not quite the audience we're looking for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but Bridget yeah, Fonda, you do the, I think I gave her, a fa- I think I tried to give her a fair shake in this movie and I don't think she was terrible. Um, it's just, I had a hard time with her character which makes the normal sort of Bridget Fonda ticks that she has uh, even more pronounced. Uh, well, I think I've made clear I like the character just because she isn't uh, the usual femme fatale, but I guess that's not too much praise. That, <laughs> that is interesting. You're, you're not the usual stereotype. <laughs> that is that is interesting I, that, they're, that they decided to ground all of her machinations in humanity. They didn't, it could have very easily made her this greedy, like horrible, sexist character. When she says, like, she's like, "Do you want to have this like unambitious job for the rest of your life, where you're underappreciated and you don't get to use your how smart you are? Do you want us to? Do you want me to get paid nothing because that's the only job available for a woman of my means is this crappy little library where I fight for hours? Like that scene was sort of heartbreaking, but like, yeah, it lets you lets you see into her character. And she was really good in that scene. I think the problem is they needed five more minutes with her because she's only there in the plot to push Bill Paxson when he wants out of the situation. And to give a suggestion that goes really wrong, that they have to put some of the money back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I guess that could have just been, just as easily have been uh, Jacob's idea while he's in smart mode. <laughs> yeah. Or... <laughs> he took his combat drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if Bridget Fonda's character just had a little more time to develop, I think because she was good in those moments, but just like the script kind of flipped Jacob when they needed to, she was just there to kind of almost humanize Hank instead of actually being part of the group. And that Hank is sort of the hero you're rooting for, even though Hank is constantly a monster. But because it's Bill Paxson and because I think the movie kind of wants a hero for you to root for, they 
they want to soften the fact that he like immediately goes to murder and does all these things to you know protect his brother or to save his family or whatever. So she, it feels like she's there to constantly push him in the bad direction. But again, like those moments, where, that moment where she's talking about here, here's what my life is like. Are you really going to now that we finally have a chance to get out of this? Are you going to sentence me to stay in this prison for the rest of my life? If there was more of that and more of her working together with the rest of the group or at least Hank, because I agree with you 100 percent, Dustin, the fact that they, they, they are a married couple in the sense that she doesn't need to seduce him. They are a team. But but she is she is the coach of the team when when they need to instead of actually being part of what's going on. She feels so separate. She's like the devil on the shoulder. And, and that's frustrating for her character and it's frustrating for the way the movie uses a very different female uh, character in this movie. She should have been involved. She should have like, okay, we've got to do one of our crime cover-ups. Come on. You said we need to spend more time together. Yeah, well, <laughs> let's go out to put some of the money out there. Sure, there might be some plausible deniability issues or alibis or whatever, but or, or problems with alibis, but yeah, yeah, she's I almost she's I, almost like someone they go to a, on a mountain and like, what should we do now, teacher? Well, here's what you should do. And I think I think that she I think that the that scene didn't work for the reason that you you guys were kind of talking about, where she didn't seem to have any lead up to the fact that she was unhappy with her life. Like you might, I think non, non, uh, really hated living in super rural areas might be like, Oh fuck. I get that. I feel like it's kind of going back to what I was saying. Like, is this movie condescending to people that live in rural areas? Is it a little bit elitist? Hell yeah. Yeah. Like oh, definitely. Th- th- that she's like, she seemed, <laughs> she seemed so happy. And then all of a sudden she's just like, I'm going to shit all over this life. And well, it, I don't think, she, but I don't think she seemed happy at all. She was smiling. She was smiling and grinning the whole. Oh, that's just the intro. facade. During the intro to her, she's like smiling when, like, even when her husband can't see her smile. We only we can see her smile, and she's like chopping up vegetables or whatever, and watching her little TV in the kitchen. Like, she seems to be. But, she seems to be happy when we're intro to her. They seem to have a perfect little that, life. That is the mask becoming the face. <laughs> she's convinced. <laughs> She, like Jacob, has bumpkinized enough that she likes living there, and of course, that's caused mental atrophy. Well, I don't know if that's <laughs> and true. I buy that. I don't, I I buy don't that know if too. that's true. I do. I do agree it's a mask, but she says pretty explicitly that it was a mask. That do you expect me to keep fake smiling my way through life, essentially? Yeah, and I so, hate it. I hated that. <laughs> I, 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 th- I think that's fair because there wasn't enough of that. I mean, you see her in tiny moments and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, found all this money and then I killed someone. Because even and, – and that's one, one of the moments I hate most about this movie. Maybe the moment I hate most is that part where Bill Paxton kills someone, uh, the snowmobiler. And then tells his wife about it, and she's immediately like, "Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, here's what you should do." And she and he, and he stops and like guilts her for not uh, wondering whether he's a monster, and is like, "Hey, you you don't want to talk about the fact that I killed someone?" And she's like, "Yeah, no, that's sad. I'm really worried about that." And I think that's the one part of the movie that I legitimately hate because 
that's one of the first maybe chances in the movie where she has more than a couple lines and it is painting her even though bill paxton or hank has just killed someone it's painting her as the monster in this relationship uh which i think is completely unfair that's that is true that is true immediately when he brings it home which we should I, i'm gonna if i jump you might don't mind me jumping back about like 20 minutes when no. they found the money um when they first bring it home i kind of love that scene that they have together where bill, bill paxton which also side note to a side note i think this might be bill paxton's best cast role in his entire career because he is perfect as the uh, you know, f- former bumpkin, uh, you know, former rural guy who... He's college-educated, but he's coasting. Yeah, he's, he's college-educated, <laughs> but he's in this town, so he's sort of unambitious. Uh, Is he also and, frailty? I think, and I th- yeah, he's, he's, he, and I like him as a figure of menace, because uh, frailty starts him off as a figure of menace, and I like him as a straight bumpkin, but somewhere in between, I think, is his sweet spot, because he has, he has a sort of, like, sweetness that isn't used in movies like Neo Dark or Frailty, and he has a a sort of goofiness that's also not used in that. I, I think this is, like, his best cast role. Anyways, so they bring him home, and he basically tells the guys in the car, like, don't tell your, well, at least to Lou, don't tell your wife, don't tell anybody, Jacob, don't tell anyone. He comes in, he's immediately like, hey, honey. <laughs> like, he's like, you got a raise at work that day. He's like, hey, honey. And he just, he, he immediately finds a way to segue the conversation into him dumping the money. I love that because it shows you that he's full of shit in a very subtle, like not subtle way. Uh, and, and then, and then they go back and, and he's, and she's just like immediately ready for the murder. And it's, and they just needed more time with her for us to know, like, why she needs to get out of here? Why does she, well, why does she, why does she need to be the bad guy? Like that's, that's the thing I hate most about the movie. And I should say again, I feel like I said hate so much. I really do love this movie, but I do hate the fact it feels like big. One of the biggest missteps of this is to try to make Bill Paxton too much of a sympathetic character, so that you want him to get away with the money on some level. That they're willing to completely throw his wife under the bus. Dustin, do you have any thoughts on this? Did this stuff work for you, or was, or do you consider it a sort of uh, a flaw that's worth looking over? Absolutely worked for me because. Frankly, it, I'll be completely honest. If my dad came home and said, hey, I made a million dollars, but I killed a guy, I probably would be more thinking, ooh, we just got a million dollars. So I could, So anytime somebody is greedy in a movie, I can totally relate. <laughs> well, that's, that's part of what I said it, earlier about doing anything to get out of the Midwest. This movie wouldn't work if it didn't have that fear of, like, would I take the money? The movie wouldn't work without that fear. Or the fear of yeah. being caught lying. Well, this movie, like, makes me rethink white lies of you look nice today because <laughs> I assume terrible things are going to happen to me. Like, this this movie, if you've ever told a lie in your life, which hopefully, you know, as you get more and more into adulthood, you don't have to tell the lies like you used to as a kid that you could get in huge trouble if you got caught, like, to your parents or whatever. But, like, this movie brings out a weird stress of, like, oh, my God. Why you're going to get caught and now you have to keep this. Now you have to move all these pieces around. I think I think that is one of the best things about this movie is that I, I mentioned it's a morality tale, but it is a in the same way that people say, hey, if you ever want to shoot heroin, show someone Requiem for a dream. If you're ever thinking about telling a lie, you should watch a simple plan. <laughs> also, another scene that she really sold was that 
part where Hank has learned that the money is marked. And so the only conclusion he can come to is just, I have to burn this all straight away, <laughs> especially since it's ruined my family and, well, cost my brother his life, basically. It's the money's fault. And where she screams, no, while he's doing it. But first she tries to build, but she has to build up to that and try to be reasonable. Like she's like, well, no, we can think of something. We can something like that. Exactly what I do in that situation. Yeah, I... Even if dad, even if my dad explained to me in no uncertain terms, Oh, it turned out that buddy I killed the guy for. It's all marked. I've got to burn it. She is 100% in the right at that moment. Like, let's get the fuck out of this country. It's not even marked bills. It's just serial numbers, which I looked it up a little bit. Like, there was not really great tracking for that in 1998. It's just oh, hell a list. Yeah, like, you can you can drop a bill. And also, they said they only marked some of the bills. 10%. Yeah, which basically means that you could pull... Uh, a single, you could pull five stacks, pull a hundred dollar bill from each, and then travel around the country spending those hundred dollars. They're real bills, and then it would take, yeah, how long before anybody caught the bills? When do they scan bills? When they go to you a just bank? go to fucking Mexico. Like, she's 100% right in that moment. Just get the hell out of there. You have $3.5 million. What are you doing? Why would you act? You've killed your brother. You're like your entire life has been upended over this money. Like at this point, you're like, well, I can't spend this in fucking Iowa. I better burn it all. At least get a casa on the playa out of it, you know? It's so, so painful, <laughs> so very painful. And I do think I do think the ending kind of works. I don't def- like this movie anymore. I just realized, <laughs> and that's the last thing that we that, would want that, to happen. Because they should have had a trigger warning for that scene. <laughs> though, well, you know what's though, funny though? To, totally ta- to, ta- to talk about it again is that I don't remember feeling that the first time. I think the first time I saw this, it it felt like you know that kind of just reward. I, I remembered it as all the money was either marked or the serial numbers were written down and it felt like the perfect tragic ending again normal morality tale they they committed all these crimes they ruined their lives and at the end they get nothing for it and the fact that the ending was all they had to do was like go to canada which if you're in minnesota is very easy to do what the fuck was that guys Bad teamwork. The one time you don't listen to your wife <laughs> in the entire movie, you just burn the money. Well, and you should know, Dustin, they burned real money. Just, just, I mean, it was. Oh, that's it, why it was, it was $15 million. Yeah, it was $17 million. It was actually only 14.5, uh, which shows you I can't do math. 13.5. <laughs> Um, 13.5 on the movie and then 3.5 million on money they burned just to hurt Dustin. Um, and the worst part was they had to do multiple takes. Yeah. And each time it was another 4 million they got burned. <laughs> yeah. Bill, Bill Paxton got paid literally $33,000 for this movie. Because <laughs> he, because he's committed. Sam Raimi was like, Bill. Let's just let's just shoot fake money this time. Bill's like, look, I did not sign on for the role of a lifetime only for someone to go. That's fucking monopoly money. All right. You take my salary. You dump it in the fire. All right. Take three. <laughs> take three. Let's, let's hit it right this time. God yeah. damn it. 
<laughs> uh, actually, Bill Paxton, uh, true, true, true story of this movie. Bill Paxton uh, had read the book, and his dad told his dad gave him the book and said, "You'd be perfect for this part." And Bill Paxton said, "There's no way they would ever cast me in a movie like this." Four years about Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> way to ruin one of my facts Peter why do I even do research right before the podcast sorry research and science research and science uh, that is interesting I, I sp- that is interesting I spent years preparing for playing the role of Lou so. <laughs> look there's no way there's gonna there's, there's no way they're gonna cast you as Sarah Bill. <laughs> this is not going to happen. It'd be yeah. funny if he really did want to play Lou, and then he got too—he became too big of an actor in the meantime. And they were like, "That, was, that reminds you, me of my, my favorite story: is that uh, Raul Julia, who's in Street Fighter, he was basically took the role and fucking kicked ass in it. It's a terrible movie, but he's so funny and fun to watch in it because his grandkids loved the game, and they were like, "You should play it, Granddad." That's and then that was his last role before he died. Was like, it's funny when you hear these stories, like why people took a role, and it's not just well, my agent came to my house and we were like, I should probably do one of these kind of movies because I've done a lot of action movies recently. It was like, it's funny when people are motivated by something a little sweeter and more real. Then yeah, no, I mean that that does relate to this be- movie because Bill Paxton. Uh, kids played the a simple plan video game that came out in 1995 for Neo Geo, <laughs> and uh, and he's like, look, look at that amorphous blob moving across the screen to that money box. That should be you. And Bill oh, Paxton was like, I'm gonna make this happen. Who owns the rights to Neo Geo's A Simple Plan? <laughs> I thought they were, his his, his uh, kids were just uh, big Simple Plan fans. The band. That didn't come out till later, and they just. And th- I'm frustrated that you said that because that was going to be my intro music. <laughs> Edit this out, then. Well, wasn't that funny? Yeah, I can do whatever I want. I'm mad with power. <laughs> just like Hank. Yeah. Way to bring it back. <laughs> I, I also I found a trivia note that it was actually Bill Paxton's dad who plays the old guy that's bothering him when he's at work. The guy who goes like. You're telling me there were five weeks in a month. So I figure he told he talked his son into taking the role just to make sure he got that role. Yeah, like he read the book and was like, hey, son, apple of my eye, um, you, you'd be great in this role. And he's like, hey, give, give me that one role, the guy that comes in. Like that was his dream role. I think it's so bullshit that there aren't five weeks in a month, and this is going to be my platform for sharing that. With I also like the version of that where just Bill Paxton doesn't think anyone's ever going to offer him a role. Like, I'm not that great. He was in Aliens. Didn't that raise his profile a bit? Yeah, uh, he's in Predator 2. Yeah, okay, fair enough, but... I mean, the year before it, wasn't Titanic 97? Yeah. So this was like in 1994 when the book came out. Oh, right. Yeah. So he, he may have been a slump. I, I, I didn't look up his filmography. Okay. That's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. And if I had, it would have been a quiz where I said Bill Paxton movies and and you had to guess whether they were real or not. Uh, Bill Paxton before this was in, he was in Twister, uh, True Lies, Apollo 13. Fake. 
real <laughs> boxing Fake. Helena. He was in a lot of movies. That people no, go, so pre ninety four was boxing Helena. These all these Fake. were pre all all these were pre Simple Plan in ninety eight. No, no, but ninety four is when the trivia said. Is when what? Oh, when he is when he's told to read the book. <laughs> when like this movie was first con- being optioned and considered Jesus for a movie. Jesus Christ, I think. this is terrible. This is terrible radio. Oh, sorry. Anyways, edit all, the, edit, sorry. edit all that up. No, I, I'm going to. Actually, let's jump back a little bit. He gets to the murdering really fast. The murdering happens yeah. super fast in the movie to a level where I almost think like they should have killed Lou and his wife first and then have the snowmobile incident later. Because the snowmobile incident is true cold-blooded murder, and the Lou thing is self-defense. I feel like if they wanted to escalate it, they should have had the Lou and his, and his wife scene. Because he genuinely doesn't want to shoot Lou's wife, even though he doesn't seem to like her at all. But just because he's a decent human being, he genuinely doesn't seem to want to shoot Lou's wife. Jacob doesn't want to shoot Lou. Maybe that should have happened earlier, and then they had the snowmobile accident when he has to suffocate somebody. <laughs> Oh, Sarah could have killed him. Yeah. Sarah's come along for the ride. Now she's the monster they wanted. <laughs> that <laughs> Hank wants to guilt her into being. She's the one who just murdered this guy and is like, okay, uh, next step in our plan will be bring her along <laughs> with the stuff. Yeah, they're going to like TGI uh, Fridays or whatever. Bring- I think his character is really good because I feel like he plays someone who's trying to impromptu piece together a crime scene with a level of intelligence, but not like the level of intelligence of an actual criminal. So he makes a lot of good decisions or quick decisions to try to save the situation, but a lot of times they result in even bigger problems. So I, I feel like I feel like he's a very realistic character. Fair enough. Yeah, he's, he's uh, well-balanced. Uh, he seems to have a, a good head on his shoulders. Yeah, like when they first get the money, he's like the only one that is thinking practical, pragmatic terms. Like, okay, so no, we can't take the money. It's like he's basically speaking for the audience because the audience knows if this all goes well that they probably wouldn't have a movie. Or if it was a movie, it'd be like the movie Blank Check. Just like, <laughs> just, if everything went well for him, like, there eat, wouldn't there wouldn't be a movie, right? So, I eat my favorite movie until he runs out of money. Yeah. <laughs> as a kid, exactly as a kid, as soon as um, as soon as uh, uh, a bad dude from RoboCop shows up to take away his good time, I, I was like, this is Miguel Ferrer, yeah, Miguel Ferrer, whatever, whatever Miguel Ferrer shows up uh, in that movie, I'm like, oh well, I'm gonna go watch Sandlot again. Um, <laughs> this movie you're, sucks. You, you are you. You're forgetting about Tone Loke, and that hurts my feelings. Oh, so I guess I'll watch uh, Ace Ventura: Pet Detective and listen to that song about roofies. No, just On watch Blank Check. Don't don't watch the end of Blank Check. He runs out of money. Yeah, nobody wants to see Dustin, that. Ruins it. Dustin, I feel like there's a theme. Have I given in away the movies what the that you like, is? Dustin? When you come back uh, in the show next, you're going to be bringing Richie Rich, right? <laughs> It's basically blank well, he check. Has, but he has he money has to, at the end of that movie. Yeah, yeah it's, it's blank check if he doesn't have to give up the, the blank check. 
He just has to kill John Larroquette. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason it's called lifestyle porn. <laughs> I think we found the thing that's going to be deleted from this podcast. The whole thing. <laughs> Remember how I said early on that sometimes we start talking about other movies, but you never hear it on the final product? This would be exhibit A. Maybe C. I don't know. I think we've done this already a few times. Um, I'll go with exhibit B. That's my answer. Okay. So what what else do you guys want to talk about from a scene perspective or anything like that before we start getting into some final thoughts or other things we want to talk about? I would be remiss if I didn't mention the snowmobile accident and how horrifying it is because... Yeah, it's really either a really well placed dummy or something because the, the sort of legs are just it's done in slow mo but not typical over stylized slow mo. There's no filter on the camera. It's just sort of this really straight ahead scene of the snowmobile crashing. There's I think there's no sound effects because it's um, basically the, Bill Paxton is reporting the story back to his wife. I think while this is happening, so there's no sound effects. Mm-hmm. It's an incredibly creepy shot without sound. There's no attempt to beautify it, which I guess is something or dis or distance the audience from it, which would be a classic Raimi thing to do in any other movie. That's a perfect point is that usually slow-mo is used to make violence look balletic and beautiful, like in a John Or movie. funny or, or, or funny. heighten the ridiculousness of yeah, it. Yeah, but instead it, it was made to make it more tragic and horrible. Because there's nothing cool about this movie. Yeah. There was no plot leading up to it. There was no satisfaction, no reason to dislike the victim. Yeah, you didn't have like a fist fight with the old man before he went down. It's literally just an old man like, hey, your brother hit me with a fucking pipe can you help me and just puts his hand there's another Raimi touch that would have been in an earlier Raimi movie he has to fist fight with the old guy and it becomes kung fu and stuff be awesome or maybe I'm mistaking Raimi for the Zuckamabram Zucker brothers (laughs) it's a thin line between the Looney Tunes of Evil Dead 2 and um like airplane um yeah that's that scene is really gross and then do we mention also while we're talking about Raimi for did we talk about the uh, the uh, raven or the vulture picking at the eyes of the dead pilot, and it looks like the no, pilot I, is moving? No, I mentioned it. I mentioned it in the in the Raimi flourishes that we do get, but that is a fucking great. Scene. And, and it, it, I, it might be, be in the book, but it looks it just looks like something that Sam Raimi made up. Like he was on set one day, and he was like, "I want to make these birds even scarier and more gross. Like, let's have a scene where you think the pilot is alive, and then, uh oh." He's not. Did any of us read the book? No. Oh. Um, we, we believe in science and research, but like, let's not be crazy. Yeah, I know the book exists. That's, that's enough. That's the kind of research that we do on this show. <laughs> on a previous is knowing episode. what exists and what doesn't. Yeah. Uh, Dustin, do you have any specific scenes that you wanted to call out that you found interesting or you think we didn't really touch on? I, I think I've said all the stuff that I think is really good and outstanding. I have one last scene that we haven't talked about at all, which I think is a giant mistake because it's one of my favorite parts oh. of the movie is the whole Gary Cole stuff. We with the FB, Gary the Cole fake... at all. Yeah. He... No. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Do you agree or did you not want us to talk about it? Because that I no... so wanted to talk about that now because it is because I don't know how I haven't thought of this until now, but that gun loading scene is one of the most suspenseful yep. bits of film I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, holy... And and also that bit where Paxton is running over the hill trying to warn the cop, hey, that guy's actually 
a mobster. He's not with the FBI. It really made my head spin because I, I've never seen a hero, a guy being a hero in a scene like that, who was that dirty. Yeah. Who had hands that dirty. Yeah. That that whole sequence, and I it, it really is the climax of the movie. We haven't talked about it, but it's so fantastic, and it makes you... The tension, the fact that you don't know what side Gary Cole is on, really, because you don't know if um, Sarah is lying. She already wanted Hank out of there. She, You don't know. Even that picture in the paper they show you, you're like, well, I guess that could be Gary Cole. It's like, true. It is so well done. And even watching it again last night, I was on the edge of my seat knowing what happens because every little bit about that from the gun loading to everything else is perfectly done. And it's also great because you spend you spend an hour and a half in this movie with 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 the normal stuff about how uh, these criminals or these wannabe criminals are fucking up their own plan and tearing themselves apart so that when an exterior threat presents itself suddenly you forgot that was even an option yeah it, it, it makes you paranoid um and as paranoid as uh as hank and, and it, it, it's the scene covers itself remarkably well that like they show that they show that the reason that they're allowed to have like oh yeah he gave me the gun the reason he has the gun is because they're gonna lie and so the sheriff gave him a gun so that they could um basically like mark off when one of them found the plane. I love those little details in the scene that make it sort of this intricately wound little clock. Like those, those sort of action sequences in the movie are really, really well delivered. And the fact that Hank just shoots. Hank, oh, yeah. Hank just shoots him in the head. When he's doing the you're not a cold-blooded killer, oh. and he just raises his gun and shoots him in the fucking head. That reminds me oh, of... It's so, it's it's so, so good. good. Oh, thank God they didn't do movie bullshit. <laughs> like I didn't want to see Gary Cole and him wrestle. Thank you for not having giving us the scene where they wrestle. Um, yeah. But yeah. So any any stray thoughts? Any like final yeah. moments? What do you, what do you got, Peter? Nothing. I got nothing. I think we should put, Fair put a pin in this. Dustin, I'd recommend the movie. Oh, absolutely. I would also recommend the movie. I had a lot to. I had a lot to to uh, gripe about. But if you like sort of straight ahead clean, competent thrillers. You can do a lot worse than this. It's, it's a, it scratches that itch for, for me. Yeah, and I actually feel a little bad that I may have got uh, bogged down in some parts of the movie that I disliked um, because I feel like the movie does what it does so well that there's not there's there's some stuff to talk about, but not but not to the point that there's a full twenty minutes on. Hey. This movie's so competent and interesting, you should see it. So I feel like maybe we got bogged down a little more than I would have liked in some parts that I didn't like. But um, it, it really is a great movie and a true outlier in Sam Raimi's career. In that it's the best one. <laughs> Wait, what is, what is your favorite? That we're going to disagree on. <laughs> yeah, what, what's your favorite, uh, Aaron? Army of Darkness. Oh, mine's Evil Dead 2. I, I think... Philistines. <laughs> I think it's probably Evil Dead 2. <laughs> Army of Darkness, Evil Dead 1, Drag Me to Hell. Like the, I specifically like Sam Raimi in that mode a lot. I kind of get the sense that Dustin does not. <laughs> a Simple Plan, Evil Dead, Quick and the Dead, Drag Me to Hell. 
and all the rest. <laughs> See, so Dustin, thank you so much for joining us. This was a ton of fun. We're definitely going to have you back. Uh, Dustin, why don't you tell the people what you're working on, what you want them to check out? I, My brother Adam, who could not be here, and I have just finished a book called Forest, A Tale of Magic Gone Wrong. It's a fantasy story about two sisters in a fairy village that have to save everybody after every after they've all turned into monsters. Not only would Lauro and Yorosa have to defy death at the fangs and talons of monsters and the soldiers they needed to fool, hardest of all, they'd have to get along. Forest, a tale of magic gone wrong. Get your copy from Amazon today. Thank you so much, Dustin. Uh, Peter and I have an announcement as well. Uh, we've been teasing it for a while that we're going to change the name of our podcast and, and talk about a little bit of a rebranding. And we're actually going to talk about that right this second. So when Peter and I, uh, when Peter and I started the podcast, we spent a couple months knowing that we wanted to do a podcast, but having a lot of trouble deciding on a name. And so we're like, you know what? Fuck this. Let's stop holding up the actual doing things and choose a name. And at that point, we hadn't even decided that we were going to cover movies exclusively. So after a lot of thinking and what we wanted to do with the <laughs> podcast, we just decided to go ahead with it. And now that we've had a little bit more time, uh, we've decided to make a change to our name and how we pick movies. Peter, do you want to announce the new name? Of our podcast starting the first week of July. <laughs> the new name of our podcast will be We Love to Watch. Uh, sort of a play on We Like to Watch uh, the pervy sentiment. It is going to be uh, structured a little bit differently. So it's going to be four to five episodes a month. Uh, one a week as, as usual. Um, but they're going to be themed months. Specific themes that are... Not just by um, genre, but like sub-sub-genre. Maybe the themes are just the movies are very loosely connected. But before we do that, we have one last episode, uh, which is going to be The Apple, uh, the canon musical. Hi, Aaron Armstrong here, one of the co-hosts of Listen to Our Podcast, soon to be We Love to Watch. I know that Peter just said some stuff about us doing The Apple. Unfortunately, our research has failed us terribly in that the Apple is not available on DVD. It is out of and unable to be rented from any digital source or streamed online. So as a result, our research has failed us. We are ashamed of ourselves. There will be punishments. There will be write-ups. I don't know if either of us are actually going to be back next week, but we will be subbing in for our next episode due to a poll that we held in the Dissolve Facebook group, the David Lynch movie, Dune. So disregard everything Peter just said. You can do that in general whenever you want as well. And we will not be doing the Apple. It will be due next week. Sorry for the confusion. Yes. And then starting in July, the first week of July, we're going to be starting our first theme month, which is Alien Reinvasion, which is Alien-related sequels. So the first week of that is going to be a movie called Predator 2, uh, starring Bill Paxton. 
which you may know from such movies as A Simple Plan. We will be having a guest for that episode, the founder of the website LudditeRobot.com, Rick Kelly. He also gave me uh, some more copy that he asked me to read. He said that he wanted me to add that he is surprisingly handsome, charming, and funny. Now, it's true that he sent that. My confusion is why he wanted to add the modifier surprisingly. Um, I, I think that maybe he's just sometimes surprised by his own handsomeness. And that he was like, hey, sometimes I look in the mirror and then I pass out for a little bit because I'm so shocked at how good looking I am. Um, I just want other people to know that. So that'll be our first uh, episode of that month. The next three very quickly are going to be Alien Resurrection, uh, Species 2, and then we're going to close out the month with Superman 2, uh, featuring friend of the show, former guest, and unsurprisingly handsome uh, Zach Groton. And then in August, we're not going to announce the lineup quite yet, but the theme will be... Killbillies. So we're Killbillies. It's going to be uh, redneck horror movies. So look forward to that. We're going to talk more about our website that you'll be able to find us on and um, our Twitter page. We're really going to see what this internet is made of with our new rebranding. And then stay tuned uh, 12 weeks from now where we change our name again uh, once we find out we don't like this one either. <laughs> uh, but but if you're if you're looking at your – if you're one of the 10 people that subscribe and are, and are looking at your iPhone and are like, what the fuck is we love to watch? I did not sign up for this. Uh, bad news. Yes, you did. <laughs> it used to be called Listen to Our Podcast. And we changed it on you. So, Tricks on you. Psych? Yeah. Yeah, psych? I don't know. Do I have to get Adam to review your podcast again? Do you guys have to start all that from scratch? No. I don't think so. Because that was not no. easy the first it'll be, time. No, it'll be the same entry. It's just you change. I basically will change the name. We're not, we're not starting oh, We're okay. not starting like a new podcast. We're basically just taking the old oh, one and re- renaming it. Yeah, like you'll. That's what I meant by you'll look on your iPhone and be like, "What the fuck is we love to watch?" Like we, we could literally tonight. I can go and change the feed name to like, yeah, W L T W or whatever, and it it would bounce within twenty four hours. So so thank you so much, Dustin. Again, this was a ton of fun. Uh, we definitely my pleasure. We definitely plan to have you on again in the future. I honestly, I, uh, I've never had tears come out of my eyes from laughter on the podcast before. Thank you, Dustin, for making that happen. It's part. Of, it's one of the services. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for being on the show, Dustin. It was a, it was a blast. We'll definitely have to have you back. Thank you for letting me on yeah. the show. Well, apparently, half the show's been about you or a direct <laughs> insult to you. So. <laughs> Um, Have a good night, everyone. Yeah, have a good night, everyone. Make a simple plan. Thank you.